Thank you, ma'am, for helping so much. All right, Father, we just lift up tonight. We pray over the word. Everybody agrees with me. The Bible says if we'll just come into agreement, he'll do it. So, Lord, we pray today over the word of the Lord that you'll come upon me and speak your word through me. And, Lord, I pray that you would allow your word to go forth in glory, power, strong anointing. Let the presence and power, the anointing be so strong on the word, Lord, that, that everyone that's going to hear this out there, that the Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray would captivate people's hearts and minds just to be, help them be able to focus and give you their best ear and full attention. And we know that it's by the Spirit that we're able to see the things we need to see. So I ask you, Lord, to help anoint people's eyes and ears and give them eyes and ears of the Spirit, clear minds of understanding and hearts or that are, that are humble and receptive. And, Lord, that your word will go out as living seeds of truth sown into good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Spirit of God. Take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Lord, that your light will shine forth and dispel any type of darkness, lies, deception of the enemy. And that's important. Let your, the light of truth go out and dispel, you know, pet doctrines and traditions of men and things that are just religious. It's not God. Just dispel all that darkness, the lies of the enemy, and release truth. And Lord, let your word be a mighty hammer that breaks down every stronghold of the enemy and a sword that cuts away what needs to go. And let there be a washing of the water of the word, as the Bible says. But that let the word have a cleansing effect. So, Lord, we give you this time of the word. We ask you to let it go forth and accomplish everywhere it's supposed to go, everything it needs to accomplish in every life. We believe, Lord, let it come. Let the Spirit of God take it out where it needs to go. Let your angels guard the word. We bind the enemy. That the enemy will not steal or hinder the word of the Lord. We bind you now in the mighty name of Jesus and break your power. There's not going to be a hindrance about this going out to places in Jesus' name. We bind the enemy. We thank you for the power of your word and the power of your spirit. We believe now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So this is probably going to be a different sermon than you've heard before. And I'm going to deal with, in the Spine of Prophecy series, I guess this is really number 10 because... Last week's Passover Seder was just kind of its own thing, although it did fall in line with a lot of the end-time teaching that I'm doing. Uh, for example, we talked about the coming two prophets in Jerusalem next, you know, last week. We talked about that coming in the future in the tribulation time. So we did cover some uh, what's known as eschatology. But anyway, I'm going to talk about this tonight, the power of immersion, what we call baptism. And I'm taking it from a end time perspective in that God is deeply consecrating and preparing a bride for his coming so you guys please help me tonight preach this because I believe this is a very important word but this type of teaching for whatever reason I, I believe I have an idea as why it's not out there but it's not common enough and a lot of people don't know this information and I believe it's because of when I cover this, you'll see that a lot of people have been disconnected from the Hebrew roots of the faith, and they have more of a Catholic foundation as far as the Dark Ages and the Protestant Reformation coming out of that. They have more of that in their root system, and so they miss out on a lot of this stuff. So you all ready to go a little deeper tonight and learn something? So Hebrews 6, starting with verse 1. It says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, 
Now this is important that we get off the milk and onto the meat, okay? It says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of instruction about washings. Okay, this may not be in y'all's printed notes, but it's Hebrews chapter six, starting with verse one. Now listen to what it says there, right here. It says, not laying again a foundation. So this is foundational of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, and instruction about washings. And laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And then 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So we know that we now have the, the spirit of the law, and I'm going to try to explain all this as I go, but it's interesting here that it says that instruction about washings is a foundational teaching. So this should be baby Christian information, but I can guarantee you that most of you, even those that have been raised in church your whole life, have probably not heard too much about this. So the word washings there is the Greek word baptismo, and that's where we get the word baptism from, but you're not gonna find the word baptism uh, going back into the Old Testament time. They definitely did baptisms all the time, which we'll talk about, but it was called, in, in those times, it was called immersion, ceremonial cleansing, things like that. But this word baptismo can be translated ceremonial cleansing or immersion. So I'm not gonna even waste my time talking about sprinkled and dry cleaned okay we know that god immerses people that's it's immersion so there's no point in me even talking about anything else all right so when i'm talking about baptism i'm talking about being all the way under the water and brought back out let me read you a couple more scriptures colossians 2 12 through 13 buried with him in baptism so there is a death of the old wherein also you are risen with him through, the, through faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh he hath made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses. So we see that there is a, a death of the old and that's important. And of course my favorite scripture is 1 Corinthians 10 uh, 1 through 5 here it says this for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. In other words, they died in the wilderness. And then it goes on to say, learn from their mistakes. But I want to focus on this today. In verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. So the baptism into the cloud is a baptism in the Holy Spirit. So without dwelling on this, but we know when we accept Christ as our Savior, the Bible calls this one baptism into one body, and the Holy Spirit somehow 
he takes us and baptizes us into Christ, into Christ's body. We're born again. We're children of God. We're brought into the faith. That's the born-again experience, okay? Then we also know that there is a baptism into the Holy Ghost, Matthew 3.11, where Jesus takes us, and he baptizes us into the Holy Spirit in fire, and we're clothed with power. But I'm talking tonight about the baptism into water, immersion. And the children of Israel were baptized in the Red Sea in Moses. So what happened was they had celebrated Passover and they had taken of what we have today as Holy Communion. And we know that the death angel passed over and it was time to go. And as they left, they were baptized in water. So God made sure that there was some kind of a blood applied first then there was a baptism in water. So it is the same pattern for us today. We accept Christ as our Savior. There's the blood applied to our lives. There's a new birth. And then there's baptism, immersion into water. So where I'm coming from is more in the realm of a deep consecration unto God. So let me say this for the benefit of those that need to hear, but also just to deter some of the religious nutty critics out there so water baptism does not get you into heaven okay <clears throat> so when I'm preaching tonight I'm not even coming from that angle so let me just explain for example when Jesus died on the cross always go back to the thief that was on the cross okay the thief looked both there was two thieves one of them died in his sin the other one put his faith in Jesus and just by virtue of the fact that he put his faith in Christ that's all the thief on the cross did was put his faith in Christ. And Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. So always go back to that because anybody that's trying to add to that, they're ultimately trying to, to teach you that you're saved by works. So in other words, if somebody's saying you have to be water baptized to be saved, they're adding works. And that's not true. Or they say, some believe you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to go to heaven. And that's ridiculous. So it's just your faith in Jesus Christ alone that gets you into heaven. So somebody that sincerely comes down and they pray and they accept Christ and they're sincere, and they go out and get hit by a car or something and they die, they're going to be with the Lord. They may have never taken communion. They may have never been anointed with oil. They may have never been water baptized. They may have never even been discipled. They don't even know anything except Jesus saved me tonight. That's enough, okay? So I'm not coming from that angle. I'm coming from an angle of once you are saved, what are we supposed to be doing? And how many of you guys know once you accept Christ as your Savior and you're born again, you know, there is a life of growing in Christ, maturing, but there's also a deep consecration unto God. So that's more of where I'm coming from. This is a part of our deep consecration unto God. And I hope by the end of this sermon that you'll have learned a lot and it will strengthen your faith about what we do and why we do it. Because I think a lot of places, they, they simply go through and anoint people with oil, but they don't even know really that much about why they're doing it. And the people receiving it don't know why they're being anointed. And so when you don't know, there's not really a lot of faith. Does that make sense? Because I mean, what, are you, what are you believing? If you don't even know why you're doing something, and the same thing with communion. A lot of people just simply think it's just, 
I remember what Jesus did only, and just like that, they don't really understand that it's a very powerful thing. And once you understand the power of communion, then it will, um, there'll be more faith about what you're doing, and it's more powerful. So the same with water baptism. I want your faith to be strengthened tonight. All right, so verse John 5, 8 says, the spirit, the water, and the blood, these three are in agreement. So in the Old Testament times, the way that God consecrated the people was through the blood, it was through water immersion, what they called ceremonial cleansing, and it was by being anointed with oil. The priests that went into God's presence, they had to be, um, the blood had to wash them clean. They had to be, they called it a mikveh. They had to be immersed in water, and then they had to be anointed. And those three things carry over into the New Testament and it is a part of God deeply consecrating his bride for his coming. Now, interesting, just as John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, baptizing the masses and preaching repentance to prepare the way of the Lord, I believe the spirit of Elijah is coming upon the remnant of God in these last days to help prepare a bride for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So once again, there's a deep, there's a, an emphasis on a deep consecration. The Holy Spirit is speaking to his bride. So in other words, before Jesus came the first time, there was a call to repent and get things right. And they were being immersed in water. That was part of that. And this was happening widespread. I believe that the Lord in a very similar way is going to be shouting out to people, repent, get deeply consecrated because I'm coming again. So there was a preparation for his first coming. I believe there's a preparation going on right now for his second coming. Does this make sense? All right. Now, also, let me say this. There's some things that we're going to have to unlearn. Now, people that have not grown up in church and they have not been really deeply indoctrinated by a certain group of people, a certain denomination, they don't have that. They probably don't have this problem. But people that's grown up in a certain denomination, a lot of times they've been really indoctrinated with not only the truth, because there's, there's some truth there a lot of times. It's really good. But they're also indoctrinated with their pet doctrines. So their little pet doctrines can be a big hindrance to what they need to know. Let me give you an example of some things that we need to unlearn. I, can just, I could go on and on with this, but I'm just going to give you a couple. One is, how many have heard the scripture that says, the lion lays down with the lamb? As you know, it doesn't actually say that. It actually says the lion lays down with the wolf, okay? And it talks about children playing with cobras. I'm just saying that there's some things that we hear. I've, I've said it myself because you hear it and you hear it and you hear it, and so you just repeat what you hear. How many have heard the story about how the high priest had to have a rope tied to his leg when he went into the Holy of Holies so that whenever he died or whatever, if he was going to die, that he would be pulled out. How many have heard that? I have too. And years ago, I probably don't remember, but I probably said the same thing. But did you know it's not in the Bible? I'm not saying that it never happened. It might have, but it's not in the Bible. How many have heard that the Antichrist will be actually Satan in the flesh? In other words, Satan will live inside him and possess him. How many have heard that? It doesn't say that. I'm not saying that Satan won't enter the guy. And hey, he may hang out in the guy. I don't know. 
All I know is in the Bible, it does not say that. It says that Satan will give him great power and authority and give him his throne. That's all it says. But people, people in, inject their, their thoughts, their, um, you know, their interpretation, and they kind of add two things. I'm just trying to point out that there's a lot of things that we've heard over the years that once you search it out, you find out it's not necessarily what the Bible says. I mean, guys, remember, and again, I need to stop because I could go on this rabbit trail for a long time. But how many of you guys have heard when, when the rapture of the church happens, the body of Christ, the bride, I call it the bride, the remnant is caught away, okay, that the Holy Spirit will leave? How many have heard that? I have, and I know some of y'all growing up in church. All right. The Bible doesn't say that. Now, I agree that it's going to be probably less of God's presence than right now because think about it all of the really powerful men and women of God all over the world that are praying and fasting and seeking God for souls and seeing revival and doing all this those people are going to be gone so it's going to be left with people that just played games so you know the anointing is going to drop down you know but as far as the Holy Spirit leaving the Bible does not say that and I don't believe that he will at all so here's some things. Some people have been taught that you have to be water baptized to be saved. Mark 16, 16, this is where they get it from, one scripture. Now listen, don't ever base a doctrine on one scripture, especially when you just read through it and see something like this, and you say, oh, well, it must be that way because there's so many other scriptures that show that it's not the truth, and I'll, and I'll show you what this scripture actually means anyway. But it says... Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So people take that one scripture and they think, oh man, if you don't get baptized, you're going to be in hell. Okay? And what that actually means is this. It means that the word saved there. See, people have misused that word so much, especially in America, so bad. But... The word saved there in the Greek is the word sozo, S-O-Z-O. Most of the time when you read that word saved, that's what it means. The word sozo means to be saved, but it means healed, delivered, protected, preserved, do well, prosper, made whole, all of that. So in other words, everything Jesus did for you at Calvary is wrapped up in this word sozo. And you know what the Hebrew Old Testament counterpart to that word is right there? Yeshua. Which is the, actually the name of Jesus. Isn't that cool? So it's, it's more than just, what, what Jesus is saying here is this. To really come into the fullness of everything that he paid for us to have at Calvary, to really come into the fullness of it, there needs to be a water immersion. Does that make sense? So in other words, you accept him, you believe you're born again, but to really come into everything that he paid for you to have, to really come into all of it, the sozoed life, the life of healing and health and deliverance and protection and pros prospering and doing well and made whole and come into the fullness, water immersion plays a role in that, which I believe that I will bear out in this sermon. So see, we use that word saved all the time for different things, but truthfully, that word is the word sozo. So there is a 
saved as far as you've accepted Christ, you're born again, you're on your way to heaven. We use that word saved for that. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to say it that way, but really what we're saying is, is they've been born again. They're now God's child. They're now God's property. They're under the blood of Jesus. The spirit of God lives in them. They're, they're a new creation. So that's that new birth. But then the Bible talks about, and uh, I believe it's Corinthians. You can look it up. I don't have, the, have it there. But he said, you remember Paul talked about, to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's the words, the words being saved. And what's interesting is, once you've been born again and you're in the faith, now we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's a, a being saved, a, a life of, of really coming into the fullness of everything Jesus has for you. I hope that I'm explaining this well because this is a little deep. So in other words, you accept Christ, <clears throat> but now you're really starting to come into all that he has for you. He paid for your healing, deliverance, to do well, protection, all of that. And all of us that have been saved for very long know that you have a history with God where times that you needed finances and you prayed and he met the need and, and times that you needed healing and he healed you or whatever, set you free from stuff. How many have been in bondage to something? The Lord set you free from it, okay, an addiction or something. So what happens is, is you have this new birth but now it's that being saved that you're coming into that fullness of the sozo life of everything Jesus paid for you to have. All right, then there is Matthew 24, 13, enduring till the end. I do not believe that God takes away our free will. The Bible's clear that there will be some people that abandon the faith. There will be some, Revelation says, that their names will be, you know, can be blotted out of the book of life. So there's going to be some that just simply don't endure till the end. They walk with the Lord, but then at some point in time, they decide to be an atheist or to, to renounce Christianity and get into witchcraft or whatever it is. And they, they don't believe any longer. They've abandoned the faith. So there's a born-again experience. Then there's this coming into the fullness, the sozo life. Immersion helps along that way. Then there is, I'm going to endure till the end. Even if it means that you know, they have to take my head off for it, I'm going to go after God, and I'm going to live for him. All right, so let me shift gears here. There's two sources of root systems, if you will. If you and I go out tonight, and we were to cut down something and left the roots in place, you know, it will begin to sprout again out of those roots and so what happens is is there's basically two root sources of our modern christianity as we know it it's either going back to the catholic church and the protestant reformation that happened and that's kind of the roots or it's going back to the hebrew roots of the faith but there's really only two main root sources in the Christianity that we know today. Now granted, there may be some weird groups that have roots that go back to some cult like Hinduism or something. I'm not, I mean, those are just weird groups out there, but I mean, mainline Christianity, mainline denominations across the board, they either have their root system 
going back to the Catholic Church or they have it going back to their Hebrew roots. Now that's important to understand because a lot of what we get today goes back to those roots. See, it's been passed down from father to child, father to child for a long time. And it's played into our belief systems today. Now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Now you guys will understand where I'm coming from now. Water baptism to most people in Christianity today is a dead religious ceremony with little meaning. It is a time to confirm your salvation. Also, your family will come and dress nice and take pictures, and they'll want to take a picture of you with the preacher that baptized you. It is also perceived definitely as a once-in-a-lifetime experience and is seen by some to secure their way to heaven. So the question is, is any of that thought process right there, is any of it actually biblical? Not really. It doesn't go back to the Hebrew roots of the faith. It's simply things that have been passed from father to son, father to son, and it actually goes back a lot of it to the Catholic Church. So tonight, this sermon is going to kind of drop some dynamite there and blow some things up, and let's, let's go back to the Scripture and, and say, look, let's, let's dig out the, the Hebrew roots here and understand what is actually immersion. What, the Bible's source of immersion, what, what is it about? Because the pattern was laid out in the Old Testament, but it's carried over into the New. All right. So can you imagine if you became a Christian and somebody told you, Christians, hey, we take Holy Communion, but you only get to do it once in your lifetime. So whenever I give you this, this fruit of the vine and this wafer, you better really enjoy it because that's it for you, you know. What if they said there's this one time that a minister will anoint you with oil? And man, you better really get a lot out of it because that's the only time that that's ever going to happen. You know, and see how ridiculous that is? It's the same thing with immersion. There's going to be an initial immersion, but it's not limited to one time, okay? It's not some once-in-a-lifetime thing. And I believe that Satan hates sermons like this because it's really going to help people get free. All right, so I've extensively covered the power of communion in River of Life. I've also discussed anointing with oil which we need to look at more, but today I want to discuss immersion. But I want you to think about this. In light of what we did last week with Passover, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, free, or I'm sorry, flee from idolatry. I speak as, as to wise men, you judge what I say. It is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. So when we partake of that cup, and you saw that at Passover, the cups, remember? And Holy Communion is the third cup in, in the Passover we use throughout the year. All right, Paul is saying here, is not the cup a blessing? Did you know when you partake of these things that you're bringing, you're drinking a blessing onto yourself? I'm convinced those that were here at Passover and participated with us through live stream or whatever, people that participated, I am convinced that they, that, that powerful blessings have come on you and even powerful generational blessings have come on you 
that whether you know it's there or not, it's there and it will affect the rest of your life. And I'll show you that in this scripture right here. He said, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there's one bread, remember, at the Passover Seder, there was one bread that was broke and the bigger piece was hidden and then the other piece was broken and shared. He said, when we partake of this bread, that it's one body. And he says, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? So see, they would come in and bring their sacrifices, and the priest would take that, kill the sacrifice, cut it into five pieces, put it on the altar, and there would be a partaking of eating of that sacrifice as it was cooked. And the Bible says in Leviticus that as the priest ate of that sacrifice that they became holy unto God. And anything that sacrifice touched became holy. And I will go so far as to say that the priesthood that was made holy, they would in turn cause many other people, places, and things to be consecrated unto God. So the power of that sacrifice. And he's saying here that Israel was consecrated by these sacrifices. And he says that they're sharers in the altar. Verse 19, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice to, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now this makes more sense when you think about the table of the Lord like last week, doesn't it? Do you want to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? So I know from being in the ministry now as long as I have that when people are participating in the worship of idols, that they're doing rituals and ceremonies and they're participating in things, they're eating, so to speak, at the table of demons. And listen to me, they're bringing curses on themselves and their family. They're allowing spirits in that are not of God, okay? And, and they're sharing in the demonic realm. Now, what you think about this? That's Satan's perversion, his counterfeit. Do you realize, I don't think any of us can really fully fathom how awesome, powerful it is that the Lord has given us a table to come to where we can actually consecrate ourselves unto God, that you can drink the cup of the Lord that you can partake of the altar, the sacrifice of Calvary. Is anybody hear what I'm saying? Is this making more sense after Passover? See, there's a table of the devil and there's a table of the Lord. The table of the Lord, you're bringing blessings on you and your family. And the Holy Spirit, the anointing, the presence of God, there's a deep consecration unto God. It's a very powerful thing. And that's why, just putting it in context, is I think that you guys are going to begin to see some things in scriptures in a way maybe you never have. But did you know that in Acts 15, when the Gentiles began to come into Christianity, remember Peter went to Cornelius' house and then Paul began to go out. Well, all these Gentiles started getting saved. And the Holy Spirit began to fall on them. And the Jewish people were like, what do we do? They didn't really realize that it was in God's plan all along to do that. So now they're like, what do we do? And so they met in Acts chapter 15, and they prayed, and, it's, and it said that they said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we ask the Gentiles to not eat blood, 
okay, to not eat the strangled animals, to abstain from sexual immorality, and things sacrificed to idols. Now, what you got to understand is, take that literal, because we know that any sex outside of marriage between a husband and a wife, the sanction of marriage, any other sexual activity is sin, okay? But you also kind of have to understand, I'm going to paint a picture here. The Gentiles worship these demon gods. And so they would go with their family, and they still do this in, in a lot of heathen nations. They'll go with their family and take like an animal to sacrifice to that demon god. They would go there, and they would shed the blood of that animal to that idol, and they would participate in that altar, and they would eat of that sacrifice. And there were temple prostitutes there where they would have sexual relations. This was all part of their pagan worship. So now does it make more sense when the, when the council, the church in Jerusalem says, tell the Gentiles to not have anything to do with these idols and this sexual immorality and this drinking blood garbage and this stuff that's going on basically in these pagan temples to get away from it. Stay away from it. They need to come to the table of the Lord. And that's why Paul is saying here, you can't drink of the cup of the Lord and then also the cup of demons. You can't come here and have Passover and take Holy Communion at church and then go take your animal to the local temple to Diana or whatever and worship that demon God. It doesn't work like that. So there's an awesome power in communion and in uh, obviously Passover. Think about this also, the anointing. Exodus 29 verse 7. Just take the anointing oil and anoint him. It's talking about Aaron. Moses had to consecrate Aaron. And he said to Moses, take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. So Aaron, who was able to go into the Holy of Holies, had to have oil poured over him. In Mark 6, 13, Jesus sent out his disciples to minister. And it says that they drove out many demons and they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And then James 5.14, if anyone is sick among you, let him call upon the elders of the church that they can pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committing any sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so you can be healed. So you gotta understand, when we take Holy Communion, you're, you're sharing in the altar of the Lord. I hope that this really sinks in to give you faith today. Okay, let me put it this way. If you knew of a family that was going to a pagan temple and that they were going to sacrifice to that demon God, they were going to eat of that sacrifice, and they were going to have sexual relations with temple prostitutes, what do you think would happen to them spiritually? It'd be pretty bad. Okay, the polar opposite. When you come in here and we partake, my wife took my cup. That's all right. I was going to use that as an example. When we would partake of the Lord's um, Holy Communion, you got to understand the power of what is coming on you. Is anybody understanding this? You're partaking of the altar. And when we anoint people with oil in here, it's not just something we do for fun. Hey, let's just anoint everybody, pass it around. You know, it's not like that. You got to understand there's awesome power in anointing people with oil. There seems to be a flow of healing and the power of God.
All right, so I said that to dovetail it into this. The word that the Jewish people have always used for water immersion is mikveh. So as I said up to this point, the immersion in water seems to help bring people into the fullness of what Jesus paid for them to have. So let me just start reading it, read through this and kind of give you some things. Number one, there is an initial immersion at conversion when people get saved, okay? This helps people die to their past. There is a death of the old man and a resurrection into the new. There is. And after people were saved in the New Testament, Book of Acts, Christianity, when people gave their lives to Jesus, immersion was quick. They didn't wait a year later. Is anybody hearing me? They didn't put it off. In fact, you have to understand the culture. This is very important that we understand this culture and what was going on. Whenever Peter got up and preached on the day of Pentecost, they were all there at the temple. And to this day, you can go look at the temple area. There was little pools in Jerusalem dug into the ground called mikveh pools that were all over. I mean, tons of them that were full of water. And so when people would come to the temple to worship and pray, they would go into these pools and they would immerse themselves in the water as part of their cleansing so they can go pray. This was so common. You know, trust me that we can't even begin to imagine how common this was in that culture. And so when Peter got up and preached, here's the temple that they're at. They're already praying. They, they were there at nine in the morning, which was the hour of prayer, so the place was full. The Holy Spirit comes out and, and touches the 120, and they're speaking in tongues, and everybody notices it. And so Peter preaches. Thousands give their life to Jesus right there, and what does he do? He says, repent and go get baptized in the name of Jesus. And what do they do? They didn't all get into a bus because they didn't have those. They didn't start renting a bunch of donkeys so they could go down somewhere to some river far away. They just simply went over to the mikveh pools and, and dunked there. And so there was immersion right there. It was quick. And another example, Acts 8, 36 through 37, remember how Peter was, I'm sorry, um, Philip was supernaturally transported and spoke to the eunuch and he gave his life to Christ. Right after that, he says, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with your heart, and see, they saw some water, so he said, I do believe my heart got baptized immediately. So my point is, we need to quit putting it off. When people accept Christ, there needs to be an immersion that's pretty quick. And I also believe that for somebody's first initial immersion, um, they're a baby Christian, I believe it's very scriptural that somebody there as a mature Christian is there to explain it to them and to help them, okay? But beyond that, once you're a mature Christian, um, that's something that, that you can do yourself if you need to, or, and I know this is new to some people, but you can immerse yourself, or like you can pray for your family and do that at home. Or if you win some people to the Lord, you can baptize them. Bring them to your house if you have a pool or a tub or something that you can immerse them. But I think that people have a concept like what has to be a preacher, and it has to be at church, or it has to be in a river, or it has, to be, it has to be some certain thing. I want everybody to do this. Just close your eyes for a second. When I say a priest, 
I want you to picture a priest. <clears throat> How many of you guys saw like a Catholic priest? Or you saw, <laughs> most people, or you saw like an Episcopal priest, something like that, right? All right. Did you know in the Bible when it says we are priest unto God, nothing to do with that whatsoever, but that's what people think in their mind. The priesthood is more like that picture there. Look up Aaron's garments. Aaron the high priest, look that up. Those were the priestly garments. So what I'm trying to get at is our, our perception, our way of thinking needs to shift about this. Okay? All right. <clears throat> so we are priests unto God. It is a part of our deep consecration unto God. The blood, the water, the spirit testify. The immersion in water in Exodus 29 was called ceremonial cleansing. It was very powerful. Did you know that it was, it's been said, and I agree with this, that the best time to pray for somebody to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit is right after they're water baptized because they've been really deeply consecrated unto God, and it seems like that they're open to that. And they get that because Jesus, when he was immersed, the Spirit of God came upon him right there. And, and preachers have said that a lot of people that get immersed, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit seems to be really powerful at that time. So just throwing that out there. So let's look at what Jesus did. From this scripture, do you remember me talking about in the Passover Seder that we did, that they had this, the hand washing, remember the cleansing of the hands. How many remember that? Okay, that went on at this time, Jesus would have done that and it's carried on to this day. So let me show you something that's pretty interesting because people have always viewed Jesus washing the disciples' feet as just being like a humble servant, which it was, but there was more to it. So let's read it in John chapter 13. Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end during supper. The devil, having already put in Judas's heart to the son of Simon to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he has come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. Now, this is really interesting. This seems to me to be at the Passover Seder that this was going on. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but if it wasn't, it was, it was very close to the time Jesus was about to die. But I believe that this was probably at that last supper this took place. So those that were here for the Passover, I went through this whole thing and showed you what they did. One of the things that they do is ceremonially wash their hands. You guys remember that, okay? So interesting that Jesus... This would have been the first time this ever happened. It seemed like there was a lot of that at this Last Supper, remember? But Jesus decides he's going to get up, take off his outer garment. He's going to take the water that they had there for ceremonially washing their hands. And he was going to go through and wash the disciples' feet during, it seems to me like, during the Passover Seder. So the disciples have been doing this their whole life, and they're looking at him like, what are you doing? We've never done this before. And not only that, Peter didn't want him to wash his feet because he felt like this is not something, I mean, you're Lord, you know, why are you doing this? But anyway, Jesus poured water into a basin, starting with verse five, he began to wash his disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel 
which he had girded himself. And then Peter said to him, um, Lord, why do you wash my feet? And Jesus said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part in me. Now that is really interesting. Now, if it was just, just a humble servant thing, this is, there's more going on here than just that, okay? If you do not wa and he said, if, you, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one that was gonna betray him. So understand this culture, because this is different mindset before these holy days like passover the jewish men they would have gone and they would have immersed themselves in a mikveh pool they would have immersed themselves to consecrate themselves they do that to this day you understand and so jesus was saying here you've already been bathed is this making sense now so there was something going on here of a cleansing that God that Jesus was doing in this ceremony he was telling them this is now my blood this is now my body and now I'm going to wash you with water there was some kind of a consecration here is anybody else seeing this so I'm just going to read through some things hopefully this makes sense I feel like that people are kind of soaking this in I can feel it as I'm preaching but think about the things that have happened with water immersion in the scriptures really powerful really powerful things all right Jesus could have healed this man any way he wanted to but he spits on the ground makes mud puts it on his eyes and tells him go and wash your eyes why Think about it for a second. Why? He could have just put his hands on his eyes. He could have just spoke to the eyes. And as powerful as Jesus was, he could have just told somebody, go tell him a mile away that his eyes are fixed. So why in the world did he tell him, wash with water your eyes? Something to think about. And then Naaman the leper comes to Elisha and gets offended because Elisha doesn't even talk to him just sends the servant out and says go dip wasn't it the Jordan I believe go dip in the Jordan seven times and Naaman gets upset he didn't even come out here to talk to me what did he say I think he said something like wave his hand over me or pray over me or nothing just says go dip in this dirty water over here and he gets offended but the servant calmed him down and said look if, you know if he'd have told you to do something hard you would have done it just dip in the water and he was cleansed think about it so there was some kind of a healing that happened in water immersion why did Elisha have him do that why there's a lot of different ways this man could have been healed why was he healed through immersion I remember there was a friend of ours his name was Basil you guys might remember when he came but he was telling me that there was a man in his meeting that had a major heart condition and it was so bad that his legs were discolored because of the circulation he'd get in his legs, okay? And this man was there and they were doing a water 
baptism and immersion service. And so they had like a big tub in the middle of the sanctuary and they had laid out like plastic cloth and anybody that wanted to be baptized was coming up there and they were getting in and he was praying for them and they were being baptized. Well, this guy comes up and you know, he barely walks up there. He says, man, his heart was so bad. He was like a walking dead man. They get him up there, they immerse him, comes back up and he said the guy goes and sits down and starts feeling different. To make a long story really short, he was so healed after that immersion that his legs changed color before he left the service. God totally healed him. And what about the pool of Bethesda where the angel will come down and stir the waters? Now, you've got to understand, we think from a Western American mentality it was in their brain from childhood that being dunked in water has to do with being cleansed before God. That was part of it. That was something that was a part of their culture, a part of their life. And so in their mind, this made sense to them that they, they would get into a pool and dip and that they would come out spiritually clean and healed. You understand what I'm saying? It, it made more sense to them. And so the guy was there waiting to get in the pool and couldn't because somebody always beat him in there. So Jesus found him and healed him. But isn't it interesting that through immersion that people were being healed? All right, so let me give you an example now about deliverance. Let me tell you another story. So there was a man, a preacher that I heard talking about this. There was a woman that got saved and she was from a family that were Buddhist. So the mother was very upset that she was leaving Buddhism. And she thought, because she's a Christian now, she thought she was joining some weird cult because their whole family was Buddhist, you know. And so this young lady was very sincere, but she was very oppressed by the demonic and her mother basically was praying against her because she didn't want her to be a Christian. She wanted her to come back to Buddhism. So she was praying against her. Now, those of you that's been with me very long, you know when you're praying against somebody that you're operating in witchcraft to some degree, okay? So this young lady was really oppressed and this preacher was younger in the Lord at the time and was trying to help her, but he had friends that were very, very anointed, powerful men of God, people that traveled and saw major healings and miracles, those type of people, okay? And he asked them to pray for her and they would and it seemed like she would get a level of breakthrough but then it would come back. And so they were frustrated. They, they, it's like they really prayed, several of them prayed and it was like it was stubborn getting her really free, really delivered of this. Well, they go and they have a baptismal service. In this case, they're out at a lake or a river. I don't remember which one. And they had a lot of people getting baptized that day. She goes in to get immersed in water. Now, understand, up until this point, she had had a lot of ministry and nothing had really broke through. They water baptized this girl. She comes up and she projectile vomits. Something totally broke off her. Did you know from that moment forward, she was completely delivered and never had another problem with that? 
So think about this in regards to being delivered. The Passover blood that Israel put on their door, it protected them from an unseen enemy. Think about it. They didn't see the death angel, but the water that they were baptized into dealt with their enemies that they saw. They saw Pharaoh's army coming against them. And the water destroyed their enemies that were chasing them. So the blood did deal with an enemy, but the water dealt with a different enemy. If you'll think about what I'm saying there and really think about meditate on the way home, it's, it's actually a very powerful thing. So some things are dealt with at the communion table. Other things are going to be dealt with in immersion and other things are dealt with when you anoint with oil in the prayer of faith. So the same water that baptized Israel through the Red Sea was the same water that destroyed their enemies that were chasing them. How many people have accepted Christ as their Savior, but they've carried so much baggage into their Christianity? And if there was immersion in their life, and not just a one-time thing, but as it's needed, if there was immersion, it could help them to really get totally free from that stuff. It also, the water got in between them in their past. How many of you guys would like there to be a spiritual water in between you and your sinful past? And you see your, your enemies floating in that water dead. They're gone, okay? God didn't kill them. Took care of that for you. So there's healing and there's deliverance. But I also believe, from my experience, that there's a level of inner healing that happens in water immersion. There seems to be a power in water immersion to help break soul ties and to help minister to broken hearts. I don't fully understand it, but I know in the natural, if you get a wound, that one of the first things they're going to do is wash that wound out with water. There's something about inner healing that takes place in immersion. The next one is added protection in your life. How many of you guys want as much protection spiritually as you can get, especially in these last days? Did you know during the great Brownsville revival, there was all these thousands of people getting saved? You can understand. I mean, they didn't know what to do with all the people. All these people are getting saved, getting saved by the thousands and thousands every week. And so they started having Friday night water baptism services. They were powerful. And those people would get up there and they'd say some of the craziest stuff you've ever heard because they were unchurched people. But they were sincerely up there wanting to get immersed. Okay, and so the Lord, as they were being immersed in this, John Kilpatrick made this statement. He said that those that got immersed in water that were baptized in the bounds of revival, he saw that they were the ones that were stable and the ones that did not get baptized seemed to be unstable and some of them fell back into their old life. Think about what I'm saying. It helps bring protection from your sinful past and it helps bring stability to your life, okay? It's that part of that sozoed life. So is it a once-in-a-lifetime event? Is it something you do and then never again it's forbidden? I don't believe that at all. In fact, I strongly encourage people that have backslid at some point to get immersed. I strongly encourage it. So let me just read to you from our Hebrew roots of the faith that 
what is our heritage here? Throughout the centuries, pious Jewish people have ceremonially washed their hands daily and would immerse themselves, mikveh, weekly at the Sabbath. So think about how frequent that is. I'm just making a point that this is the way that it is there in that culture. When Jesus was walking the earth, those people that were pious, um, sincere seekers of God, they were ceremonially washing their hands every day and they were immersing themselves in water at least once a week on the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? Because a lot of people don't know that. To this day, really devout Jewish people will mikveh themselves on the Sabbath um, at the turn of the Hebrew month, which of course would be a Sabbath anyway, but on holy days uh, before Passover, um, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, things like that. If they felt like somehow they were defiled spiritually, women would after their um, period and also after giving birth, and a woman would before getting married. See, this ceremonial cleansing was part of their culture. That's why the woman with the issue of blood, that's why life was so difficult for her because she was unclean spiritually and people couldn't touch her or be around her. It had to be extremely difficult. So we are priests, 1 Peter 2, 9. The Bible says we are now priests. And I'm going to close with this, but I want you to think about how much of an honor. When I read that, that means something to me, but I, I just have a feeling like it doesn't mean enough to a lot of people out there. You understand that out of all of the nation of Israel, there was only a handful of descendants of Aaron that could go into God's presence. You understand that? Millions and millions and millions of people, and there was a handful of priests that were able to go into God's presence and worship him and burn that incense and be in there and, and be able to eat from the table of showbread. And, and so for me, when I think about that, how would you feel if today there was millions of Christians all over the world, but there was only like a hundred of them that were selected that they could pray and get in God's presence. The rest of us just couldn't get there. That would be horrendous. I think about that whenever I read this scripture, how Jesus has now allowed us to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you understand, this is huge. And that we can actually come into his presence. And that we are priests unto God. That just like Aaron's garments, we are clothed in righteousness, the white. We're clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit, the blue. And we're clothed in God's presence, the gold layer. And we're able to go into his presence and offer that incense of worship and prayer and spend time with him. That's huge to me. Because if we lived before the times of Jesus, we would have not had that available to us at all. But look at how important it is as priest, the Old Testament pattern that the high priest on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, did you know this high priest had to go in to the Holy of Holies one time that year, and if he messed up, he messed up for the whole nation. So he had to do everything just right. There was a lot of pressure on this man, okay? I think his blood pressure was up that day. And so he had, to, he had to sacrifice an animal for himself, a bull. Think about this. A bull had to die for his sin and then a little lamb for the sin of the whole nation. But he had to sacrifice a bull. 
he had to do everything just right. And when he went into the Holy of Holies, everybody that was there around that was watching, it was silent while they waited for him to come back out. I mean, they were really solemn because the, the whole nation was either going to be forgiven for their sin for the next year or they weren't. So this was a moment that was very hallowed and very serious to everybody. And for this high priest to get into the Holy of Holies, did you know that he had to immerse himself, mikveh himself, five times that day? And he had to wash his hands and feet at the laver ten times. All I'm saying here is this. It seems to me like immersion is an important part of us being consecrated to God and really coming into the fullness of his presence the fullness of everything he has. What would you think if I told you that I believe that there is a difference in people that have been immersed in coming really into God's manifest presence in an awesome way and those that have not been immersed, that maybe they're going to struggle a little, there's going to be a hindrance. Would you all agree that that's a possibility? I believe that people that are immersed, I believe that there's a cleansing of some kind that helps them in their Christian walk. I believe it helps them to be more protected from satanic attack. I believe it helps them to, to get cleansed of the old stuff from their past. I believe that it very well can affect their health. And it also can help them have more of an enriched, powerful prayer life had they not had it in their life. So let me, this is my final thoughts here. So Christ, we know he was baptized to inherit the priesthood. John the Baptist was Aaron's descendant. He was passing the priesthood. But this happens every year in the fall. They have a season called the season of Teshuvah where they, they really repent and it's the 10 days of awe and they get things right with God leading up to Yom Kippur. So John being the, a priest and calling people to repentance and immersing them, this was not some radical thing that was going on. They, they did this every year, but what was radical about it was that John was this wild-eyed prophet out there calling people and saying the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, that, that was something that was added to this season of Teshuvah. And so people were really taking him serious and they were looking for the coming of the Messiah. Unfortunately, some of them missed it, but others did not. Others accepted Christ. Could it be that the bride being immersed before a wedding and John immersing people before Christ's coming could it be that there's something about the bride of Christ being immersed right now that God's calling us to to prepare us for the marriage supper of the Lamb? I'm just asking a question. Think about it. In Jewish culture, a, a woman will be immersed before her wedding. Is this making sense? And John immersed people before the first coming. Could it be that there's going to be a calling of the Holy Spirit back to immersion to pre help prepare for the second coming of the Lord? And then we know that the priest had to wash before they came in to God's presence, wash their hands and feet and all that. All right, so this is, this is the, the final thought was about Paul. Paul had been out preaching to the Gentiles and he comes back to Jerusalem. I want to get this in this sermon, so y'all bear with me. It says that he came back to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea came with him. All right, in verse 17... 
This is Acts, I don't know if it's in your, in your notes, but Acts 21, starting with verse 15. Now my verse 17. It says, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us, us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now this James was not the disciple. The disciple was killed early on. This was James, the brother of Jesus, who was one of the leaders of the early church out of Jerusalem. So verse 19, he's the same guy that wrote the book of James, okay, that you read in your Bible. After he had greeted them, he began to relate to them the things that God had been doing among the Gentiles. And when they heard it, they began to glorify God and said to him, you see, my brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have already believed and who are zealous for the law. Stop for a second and think about what I just read. Paul's talking about the revival among the Gentiles, and they're all praising God for it. Now they're saying, now look at the great revival that's happening among the Jews and all the Jewish people that are getting saved. And Paul's rejoicing with them. But listen to what this said because this goes totally against what some people have been taught. It says, when James said that, he said, look at all these thousands among the Jews that are now believing and they are zealous for the law. Does anybody else catch that? Too much of the body of Christ is anti-law, anti-Old Testament. Are y'all hearing me? And they've been taught all this weird stuff. When you understand the Old Testament the way it's supposed to be understood, then this, will, this scripture will make sense. How can they be zealous for the law if they're followers of Christ? Are you hearing me? Because, for example, we have the spirit of the law. See, at Passover time, they get all this yeast and leaven out of their house, right? But we all know that somebody can go through and get every piece of yeast and, and bread and everything else out of the house and still be a heathen. And their house can still be defiled and oppressed, can it? The bread, the leaven, is really not the issue. But in Old Testament times, it, it was a picture and type of what was to come. And so now, in Christ, we have the fullness, we have the spirit of the law, and what the Lord is saying now is to purge the sin out of your home and out of your life. Is this making sense? So the point is this, that now we have the fullness in Christ, and so we can be zealous for the law as well, but you have to understand it from the spirit of the law. Hey, they've been told about you that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to be circumcised, their children, nor to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you're here. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men that are under a vow. Remember the vow, the Nazarite vow. I've taught on this before. They can't touch a dead body. They grow their hair out, and they can't, anything from the vine they can't partake of. So it's a, it's a period of time. And then at the end of that, their hair is grown out. They shave their head. Their hair is a sign of that vow. All right, so he said, take these people with you and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all of you will know that there's nothing, listen to this, there's nothing to these things which they have said about you, but that you yourself walk orderly keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from strangled animals, and fornication. Then Paul took the men the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of the purification until the sacrifice was offered for each of them. So Paul, 
you got to understand what I'm trying to get to is Paul and the early church were not opposed to the law. They just understood that Jesus fulfilled it. And what I just said right there will fly in the face of a lot of Christianity today. It really will. And it will tick a lot of people off because they want to teach that you need to take the Old Testament and wad it up like a piece of trash and throw it completely away and have nothing to do with it. It's a bunch of dead garbage and start something new in Christ. And they, they want to have this ripping apart of the two. But Jesus said himself, I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. So what we need to do is we need to properly understand it. So why do I say all that? Because what they understood as ceremonial cleansing, we have today in Christianity, we call it baptism, but it's the same thing. And let me say this, if they under Old Testament law were consecrated by water, how much more powerful is it now under the New Testament in Christ being fulfilled? Is there a power in what we call immersion or baptism? Does that make sense? So when you read this tonight, I want you to go back and read Acts chapter 21. And you have questions about it, come talk to me. But the early church did not oppose. They were not anti-Torah, anti-law. They just understood that it's fulfilled in Christ. And they understood that we have the spirit of the law, okay? So the final thoughts is that God forbid that we should, once being dead to sin, live any longer. But we are baptized into Christ in his death buried with him in baptism and raised to new life in second corinthians 5 to 17 if any man's in christ he's a new creature old things pass away and everything becomes new we've been uh, colossians 3 1 through 7 we've been risen with christ seek those things which are above christ sits at the right hand of god set your affection on things above not on the earth for we are dead in christ right we're dead and now we live with him hid with god in christ there's a life of death of the old and coming into the new, putting off the old and coming into the new. And I believe that all of that, that immersion has a lot to do with that. I needed to get all of that in this sermon, guys. This is important. And I want you to remember, and I want you to keep those notes because this is foundational doctrine in River of Life. There's a lot of people out there in the body of Christ that don't understand the Old and New Testament relation. And so they don't understand that Christ came to fulfill it. How many of you guys have heard teaching about that? Some of y'all? And they, they're real anti-Old Testament, real anti. And they don't understand that the early church, including Paul and all of them, didn't have a problem with the Old Testament. They loved it. But they understood that Christ came and, and was brought in the, the fullness of everything that had been prophesied and everything that was taught. So what I want to say is this. When we get, as a church, we're going to have immersion in a couple weeks. And I want you guys to participate, but I want you to have faith as you are immersed, okay? And I want you to understand that when you come out of the water, there's a difference. There's a, there's a deep consecration that's taking place. There's a flow of healing. There's a deliverance. You're going to be different. There's a major change that's going to happen. I want you to understand that, yes, when somebody accepts Christ as their Savior, we need to help them. But beyond that, that there is nothing scripturally wrong with you being able to self-immerse if you ever feel like you need to. Can anybody tell me that there's a scripture that says that that is wrong or you shouldn't do that? I see from the scriptures that it's a powerful thing that you, on your own, can take communion. How many believe that? by yourself do you have to have a priest a pastor or somebody administer communion to you no why because you are priest unto god 
You can anoint yourself with oil, anoint your family, go through and anoint your home, bless your home. Do you have to have a pastor do that? Do you have to do that at church? No, you can do that. In the same way, you can self-immerse, you can pray for your family, immerse your family if you feel like you need to. And when you win people to Jesus, you can immerse them as Christians. You don't have to have a pastor to do it. Now, does this free some people's thoughts that have been taught contrary to this? I believe God is calling us to a deep consecration unto him, and I believe immersion has a lot to do with that. Let's go ahead and shut down recordings, and uh, I'm going to pray for people who want prayer tonight. But I thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. I thank you, Lord, for the power of immersion. And I believe when we do this in a couple weeks that people are going to be totally different. There's going to be a radical change. And I thank you, Lord, for that opportunity in Jesus' name.